Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 341. Today's big Bible questions are, what does it mean to confess, and how can we endure terrible storms of life? Well, happy Wednesday, friends. Welcome aboard to new listeners from Wichita, Kansas, Santa Barbara, California, Nashville, Tennessee, Las Vegas, Nevada, Maharashtra, India, Muscat, Oman, and near Algiers, Algeria. We're going to be reading 2 Chronicles chapter 1 today, Micah chapter 7, Luke 16, and 1 John 1 today. And we've got two big Bible questions, so let's jump in with the first one. We're going to start with a short chapter from 1 John that really packs a punch. You've probably heard 1 John 1, 9 before. It's one of the better known passages in the Bible. And because the whole chapter is so short, let's go ahead and read it. And you just listen out for the word of the day we're going to discuss, which is confession. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and what we have observed what and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, That life was revealed, and we have seen it, and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in Him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, We make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. So you've probably heard that verse before, like I said, but the idea of confessing for some of you will probably bring images in your mind of something like visiting a priest hidden in a veiled closet to confess your sins. This confession only to priests in order to seek the absolution for your sins is not a biblical practice. I say that with the important qualifier, only. We are not only to confess our sins to priests or pastors or whatever, but we are to do exactly what James instructs us in James 5, 16, where he says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. When you are confessing your sins to each other and when we are praying for each other for those sins, You and I will indeed be confessing to a priest, but not necessarily a professional priest or a Catholic priest. Be reminded, as we discussed recently in 1 Peter, the Word of God says that we are all priests, royal priests in fact, so it's good and right to confess sins to each other and not biblical to only confess sins to a professional member of the clergy. We're all called to confess our sins one to another. So that brings us to the question, what does confessing mean exactly? Now, you actually might be surprised that the biblical Greek word used here, it's not really a religious word. It's the Greek word homologio, and it's uh, a compound word. It's two words brought together. One of the words means 
the same, and the other word means word or to say, and the word means to say together, to agree, or to say the exact same thing. So in other words, when you're confessing your sins, you're agreeing that your action was wrong, and you're agreeing that you did it. The word in the Bible doesn't just apply to saying you've sinned either. We see people in the Bible confessing Christ, that is, agreeing that he's the Lord and Messiah. We see the Pharisees agreeing or confessing the same word, uh, that they believe in the existence of angels and spirits and resurrection from the dead. And we even see King Herod confessing or agreeing that he would give the daughter of Herodias whatever she asked for from him. So it's not a religious word, and it's certainly not a word that is only applied to sins. It's a word that means agreement. By confessing our sins, we're simply agreeing with God's word that we have done something wrong, that we are guilty, and that we need forgiveness. And here's the great news. When we do this, not denying our sin, but agreeing that we are guilty, then the promise is we will be faithfully cleansed. That's a pretty wonderful promise and forgiven. Now, I believe the opposite is true as well, as we see in this passage. If we don't agree that we have sinned, then we are liars and we demonstrate that the word of God is not in us, thus showing that we're not saved. Denial in this particular case is actually quite dangerous. So the second question of the day concerns the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. I believe it's the only parable in the Bible that features somebody with a personal name. That would seem to indicate that this particular personal name is really quite important, right? First of all, to eliminate any sort of confusion, this is not the same Lazarus that was raised from the dead by Jesus. It's an entirely different person, same first name. Why does Jesus use a proper or personal name in this parable? Well, I believe Pastor Tim Keller gives us a fascinating answer to the question. Every other illustration, every other parable, every other story Jesus ever tells, nobody has a proper name. It's always a sower or a shepherd or a prodigal or a man or a woman or a Samaritan or something. Never is there anybody with a proper name. But here, one character is given a proper name and therefore it must be significant. Lazarus is a name that means God is my help. One character has a proper name in this parable and the other one has no name. So what's the point of that? What are we being taught here? Well, when we look at verse 25, Abraham says to the rich man, my son, you've had your good things. Well, the rich man has made his choice on what those good things are. Those good things are his help. They were the things that helped him through life. Lazarus, on the other hand, his name says, God is my help. God is my good. God is my ultimate hope. The rich guy's hope and help is gone because Abraham says, your good things you had in your life, his riches, his wealth, his status, he had completely built his life on that. Here's what we're learning. The reason the rich man doesn't have a name is that that's all he is. He's a rich man or he's nothing. He's built his life on his wealth so that if all his wealth is gone, there's no one there. If you build your life on God, if God is your an identity, then you'll be secure. So what is an identity? To know who you are as a distinct individual, to know you're valuable and to know where you're going. So if God is the source of that in your life, your identity, then all the circumstances in this world, well, you might lose things, you will, you, you will lose things, you will gain things. Every sort of circumstance you face there's always the same core sustained self. There's a you there. There's a self there because it's focused on God. No matter what the circumstances, because the circumstances don't ultimately affect who you are. Will they affect you? Absolutely. Will they affect your identity? No. 
They won't affect who you are. They won't affect your value, and they won't affect where you're going. This is the perfect example we see here in Lazarus. Lazarus had nothing, but he had a self. He had a name. He went through the most incredible change of all, death, which is a very big change, and he is still him. He's still himself. Well, the rich man is kind of different because he doesn't have a name. Why not? Because if you build your identity on anything but God, if you build your identity on your career, your children, on a love relationship, on your talent, or on people's approval, or something along those lines, if you build your identity on anything but God, and something jeopardizes that thing, or something goes wrong in that area, you're not just unhappy, there's no you left. That means you don't feel valuable. You don't know what you're living for. You lose yourself. You don't even know who you are. There's an identity meltdown. That's the reason why Jesus says, if you build a self on anything but God, you don't really have a self. You don't have something that there that's there no matter what. There's not a you that's there, a sustained core identity, a sustained core self that there's no matter that, that that's there no matter what the situation no matter what the circumstances. If you build your life on anything but God, you don't really have a name. You're just a rich man. You're just a talented person. You're just a successful person or whatever. So what's our takeaway? Well, we must build our lives on the solid rock of Jesus and his teaching. Then when the rains and the floods come, and you better believe they will come, we won't lose anything ultimately and permanently because on Christ the solid rock we stand and all other ground is shifting sand. Well, let's continue our reading today. Second Chronicles chapter 1, verse 1. Solomon, son of David, strengthened his hold on his kingdom. The Lord his God was with him and highly exalted him. Then Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, to the judges and to every leader in all of Israel, the family heads. Solomon and the whole assembly with him went to the high place that was in Gibeon, because God's tent of meeting, which the Lord's servant Moses had made in the wilderness, was there. Now David had brought the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim to the place he had set up for it because he had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. But he put the bronze altar, which Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, had made in front of the Lord's tabernacle. Solomon in the assembly inquired of him there. Solomon offered sacrifices there in the Lord's presence on the bronze altar at the tent of meeting. He offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. That night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask, what should I give you? And Solomon said to God, You have shown great and faithful love to my father David, and you have made me king in his place. Lord God, let your promise to my father now come true, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Now grant me wisdom and knowledge so that I may lead these people, for who can judge this great people of yours? God said to Solomon, since this was in your heart and you have not requested riches, wealth, or glory, or for the life of those who hate you, and you have not requested long life, but you have requested for yourself wisdom and knowledge that you may judge my people over whom I have made you king, wisdom and knowledge are given to you. I will also give you riches, wealth, and glory, unlike what was given to the kings who were before you, or will be given to those after you. So Solomon went to Jerusalem from the high place that was in Gibeon in front of the tent of meeting, and he reigned over Israel. Solomon accumulated 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, which he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. The king 
made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones, and he made cedar as abundant as sycamore in the Judean foothills. Solomon's horses came from Egypt and Kew. The king's traders would get them from Kew at the growing price. A chariot would could be imported from Egypt for 15 pounds of silver and a horse for nearly 4 pounds. In the same way, they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and to the kings of Aram through their agents. Micah chapter 7, verse 1. How sad for me, for I am like one who, when the summer fruit has been gathered, After the gleaning of the grape harvest, finds no grape cluster to eat, no early fig which I crave. Faithful people have vanished from the land. There is no one upright among the people. All of them wait in ambush to shed blood. They hunt each other with a net. Both hands are good at accomplishing evil. The official and the judge demand a bribe. When the powerful man communicates his evil desire, they plot it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is worse than a hedge of thorns. The day of your watchman, the day of your punishment is coming. At this time, their panic is here. Do not rely on a friend. Don't trust in a close companion. Seal your mouth from the woman who lies in your arms. Surely a son considers his father a fool. A daughter opposes her mother, and a daughter-in-law is against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. But I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy, though I have fallen, I will stand up. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I must endure the Lord's fury until he champions my cause and establishes justice for me. He will bring me into the light. I will see his salvation, then my enemy will see, and she will be covered with shame. And one who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look at her in triumph. At that time, she will be trampled like mud in the streets." A day will come for rebuilding your walls. On that day, your boundary will be extended. On that day, people will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, even from Egypt to the Euphrates River and from sea to sea and mountain to mountain. Then the earth will become a wasteland because of its inhabitants and as a result of their actions. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock that is your possession. They live alone in a woodland surrounded by pastures. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in ancient times. I will perform miracles for them as in the days of your exodus from the land of Egypt. Nations will see and be ashamed of all their power. They will put their hands over their mouths and their ears will become deaf. They will lick the dust like a snake. They will come trembling out of their hiding places like reptiles slithering on the ground. They will tremble in the presence of the Lord our God. They will stand in awe of you. Who is a God like you, forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not hold on to his anger forever because he delights in faithful love. He will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show loyalty to Jacob and faithful love to Abraham as you swore to our ancestors from days long ago. Finally, Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Now he said to the disciples, There was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called to the manager in and asked, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. 
Take your invoice, he told him, sit down quickly and write fifty. Next, he asked another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, and write eighty. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly, for the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth, so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So, If you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and scoffing at him, and he told them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed, and everyone is urgently invited to enter it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter in the law to drop out. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and everyone who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off, with Lazarus at his side. "'Father Abraham!' he called out. Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in these flames. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things just as Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you, so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot... Neither can those from there cross over to us. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told him, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Mm. Strong words. Well, my dear friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May his grace cover you. May he carry you. May he be with you and may he comfort you in your pain, whatever it might be. He is good and his love endures. Good day to you and Godspeed.